Good morning, everyone. So good to see each of you here. Today, we will be wrapping up our series uh, of messages from the second letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. I've titled the entire series, This Treasure in Jars of Clay. I'd like to start today by asking you to ponder for a moment, what does it mean to be a Christian? Is a Christian someone who recites the great creeds of Christian history, who claims to believe them? Or is there more than that? Paul closes his letter to the believers in Corinth with a word of challenge. Put yourself to the test and see if you are truly in the faith. So let's see what he had to say about this. I've titled the message today, The Power to Build Up. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's begin in verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter will be established. I said it before when I was present the second time. And now that I am absent, I repeat to those who have sinned before and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will spare no one, since you are seeking proof that Christ is speaking in me, he who is not weak toward you, but is powerful among you. For indeed, he was crucified out of weakness but he lives because of God's power. For we also are weak in him, but among you we will live with him because of God's power. So Paul mentions that this upcoming visit will be his third time in Corinth. Uh, we kind of reconstruct this from what we've seen earlier in this, this particular letter. Uh, apparently, uh, and we know from the book of Acts that on his second missionary journey, Paul ended up in Corinth where he stayed for a year and a half, 18 months, and that was when the church was established in the city of Corinth. And then uh, he returned to Antioch um, and uh, went on his third missionary journey where God placed him in Ephesus. And he stayed in Ephesus for about two and a half years. And he has wrapped up his time in Ephesus, has traveled north to Macedonia, and from Macedonia, before he makes his way down to Corinth, he sends this second letter to the uh, second Corinthians uh, ahead of him to the church in Corinth. So where was that second time that he visited the church? Well, apparently, uh, while he was those two and a half years in Ephesus, there was some kind of a crisis in the church in Corinth. Uh, some uh, problem with somebody living in sin in some way, and Paul felt compelled to quickly travel to Corinth and address the issue. And he describes this as a painful visit, where Paul uh, was forced to confront something severely and, and uh, forcefully, and apparently in that visit uh, there were some people who uh, basically were... Uh, insulted Paul in some way or were, were uh, offensive to Paul in some way, and it was, it was not a happy visit. And Paul had to return back to Ephesus, and apparently he sent them a letter he describes as a letter, a tearful letter, a letter that he wrote with many tears, and uh, after sending it, uh, almost immediately regretted it and felt like maybe he had been too harsh in that letter. But he sent that letter with Titus to deliver to the church, 
And uh, in the meantime, he's wrapped up his ministry in Ephesus. He's traveled north to Macedonia to gather the offering for the saints in Jerusalem. And while he's in Macedonia, Titus comes back and he meets him. And Titus gives him a glowing report. That hard letter that we, we don't have, apparently it's lost to us. Uh, but that hard letter apparently was well received and the church repented and, and was very forceful in addressing the issue that Paul asked them to address. And Titus himself was encouraged and strengthened and came back to Paul refreshed from his time in Corinth. Uh, that's what we read in the, in the first part of this letter. But apparently before Paul finishes writing the letter and sends it to the church, uh, he also receives another report. Maybe somebody else arrived from Corinth after Titus. And apparently things have taken a turn for the worst after Titus left, maybe. Uh, and it seems that there are people in the church who are uh, openly questioning Paul's authority, and not just Paul's authority, but trying to remove Paul uh, from the estimation of people in the church so that they can introduce a different approach to the life in Christ, a different version of the gospel that is much more amenable to the worldly way of thinking that they had before they came to Christ. So, uh, Paul in these final chapters has been very strongly and forcefully responding to that. And what he's done basically is lay out a gospel that embraces, that celebrates, that highlights weakness. And he describes his own weakness in ministry, how many times he's been beaten, how many times he's been traveling and, and gone hungry, uh, how many times he's been shivering in the cold by the side of the road and been cold and hungry. All the, the expressions of how uh, little Paul had in terms of financial resources and in terms of power and authority in terms of that the world would celebrate and uh, how Paul has learned to celebrate that weakness. We read about Paul's life and we look at his letters and we read what Luke tells us about in the book of Acts and I can say those two and a half years in Ephesus look to be the most powerful two and a half years of his ministry. And yet they've been the hardest. It's been the time in Paul's life where he has felt at his wits end. In no other of his letters does he say, we despaired of living. That's how hard it's been and how utterly beyond his strength he has found himself and how completely out of depth to deal with what was before him Paul felt. And he has learned through this that that's actually the way walking in Christ works. And he has learned to not only recognize his weakness but to celebrate it, to lead with it. Because he's recognized that when he understands that he brings nothing of his own power and his own prestige to the table, then he becomes an empty vessel that Christ is only too happy to come in and fill with his glorious power. And that's been his experience. He's experienced powerful ministry. Christ has been working mightily in Ephesus. So as he comes now, uh, he's, he's addressing this issue that somebody's trying to twist the gospel around. Somebody's trying to convince people, you know, you don't have to embrace things like weakness. Uh, 
You can continue with the Roman ideals of finagling your way to power and manipulating relationships with people to climb the social ladder. And you can build prestige and pride and arrogance the way you did before. And you can live this way and still follow Christ because you don't have to let him change anything about you. They were peddling a version of the gospel that had been gutted of transformation. And Paul uh, is responding to this very forcefully in these final three chapters. And uh, Paul, as he comes this third time that he's going to be coming to the church, uh, before he gets there, he wants to set some ground rules for how they're going to deal with things. And he quotes Deuteronomy 19.15. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter will be established. Now, there are multiple places in the Law of Moses where it was established that no capital punishment could be meted unless you had the witness of two or three people to uh, establish that the person was guilty of the capital crime. But in Deuteronomy 19, uh, that principle is established more broadly to uh, become basically the principle for courts to determine the truth of a matter. And it required that if, if a matter is going to be decided by a court, that you needed two, uh, preferably three witnesses. A witness is somebody who has firsthand contact with the matter being discussed not somebody who's just heard about it that's hearsay that's not a witness a witness has to have been personally involved in the matter at hand and you needed two or three to be able to bring a charge and what we read in Deuteronomy 19 is uh, if if we're doing this and a witness is found to have been giving false testimony then what you're going to do is the person who was being falsely accused is declared innocent, but then the one who gave the false testimony, you are to punish him with whatever the punishment would have been for the crime he was trying to get the innocent person accused of. Even to the point of capital punishment, even to the point of death. And it's very forceful. Don't pity the person who lied. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Whatever he wanted to do to the other is what's going to happen to him in the court. So there's a little, uh, Paul gives no commentary to this. But I think he's establishing very clearly, when I get there, we're going to get to the bottom of things. And we're going to pursue truth. Not hearsay, not innuendo, not whispering behind people's backs. We're going to deal openly and clearly with things, and we're going to establish the matters we're discussing with appropriate verification. How much better would churches be if they followed these principles in their own internal workings? How many times do we let whispering and innuendo, and not eyewitness, but hearsay, to form uh, divisions within the life of the congregation. And uh, even things that really are not subject to witness. People speculate about uh, motivations of other people and spread things. And uh, how often we're not really in pursuit of the truth of the matter. We're trying to manipulate people in some way. And Paul says, no, when I get there, let's, let's do things the way God said. And in the minds of Jews... Uh, Anything you tried to say was going to be suspect unless it could be supported by the evidence of at least two witnesses. 
So Paul might be warning uh, those who have been spreading false things about him that when I get there, let's get to the bottom of this. And uh, there's kind of an unstated uh, from that quote from Deuteronomy 19 that whoever's falsely accusing anybody of something uh, should be subject to some form of punishment for that false uh, testimony. But also I think Paul is committing himself to the same pattern as he... uh, recognizes that he likely will have to face with the problem of sin in the congregation and is somewhat fearful of having to come and as we continue reading in these verses having to deal severely with the congregation because of these things Paul is letting them know that he is also going to operate in this way that the people he's going to confront it's not just going to be hearsay Uh, there needs to be uh, a clear pursuit of truth in the matter and getting to the bottom of things with, with clear evidences. And uh, Paul repeats something that he said in his previous visit. When I was there the second time I said this, let me repeat it now. And he addresses this both to those who sinned before, and apparently that second visit had something to do with sin, some people who were sinning. Uh, but he says more broadly, not just the people who sinned in that issue, but perhaps he's thinking now about this broader problem of false teaching, uh, not just to those who sinned before, but to all the rest, the whole congregation. Here's what I want to warn you about. If I come again, I'm not going to spare anyone. I'm not going to let anybody's position in the church intimidate me into not saying what I have to say. I'm not going to, just because I love you, I'm not going to fail to confront whatever I need to confront. Uh, I am not going to exempt anyone from whatever I feel compelled that I must do. I am going to firmly do what I feel Christ is asking of me to do, given that you are seeking proof that Christ is speaking in me. And this was one of the accusations against Paul. Oh, yeah, he writes great letters, but boy, when he's here in person, he, he can't talk. His speech is worthless. And, of course, people in Corinth, the wealthy in Corinth, were probably well accustomed to the Roman uh, pattern of public speakers who had trained in rhetoric and who were very uh, dynamic in their speaking ability and very able to passionately put forth an opinion and convince uh, people who were listening to them. And they listened to Paul and said, he's not talking that way. There's no polish. There's no panache. There's no finesse to his speech. Paul didn't have that kind of training. He was not trained as an orator. And he says, are you seeking for proof that the things I'm telling you are coming from Christ? And he reminds them about Christ. You know Christ. The one who isn't weak among you. The one who's powerful among you. And then he says this about Christ. Consider this about Christ. And it's very interesting the the prepositions Paul uses here. He was crucified into, I'm sorry, he was crucified out of weakness, but he lives out of God's power. He uses the same preposition. And, And the idea being that Christ operated both out of weakness and out of the power of God. When Christ faced the cross, (coughs) he fully embraced 
his weakness as a human being. He fully embraced the limitations that each of you and I face as human beings. And he allowed himself to be nailed to a cross and hung there until he died. He fully embraced his weakness and operated out of that weakness on the cross. What did Jesus do on the cross? He surrendered to his human weakness and allowed death to take him. And yet, that is the act that changed everything, isn't it? And Paul is calling us to embrace both of these things that Christ gives us such a powerful example of. And nothing is a more powerful image of weakness than being stripped bare naked and nailed spread eagle on a cross to slowly die while the world mocks at the feet of your cross. And that, that image of weakness was something so powerful that for many Jews, it became an insurmountable obstacle to faith. They refused to follow a Messiah who had been humiliated that way, who had embraced weakness in such a public and shameful way. But Paul says that is the Christ, the powerful Christ we follow. And he's, he's encouraging us to think of our own walk in the same way. We too need to be willing to operate out of that weakness that is who we are. He says Christ may have been crucified out of that weakness, but he was also, he was also raised and lives out of the power of Almighty God. So Paul says that's the same thing with us. We are weak in him. But among you, we live out of that power of God. So there is this. It isn't that Paul is saying there's no power in our life in Christ. There is tremendous power. But we access it through weakness as Christ himself modeled for us. He went through the weakness displayed on the cross to come to the glory and power of the resurrection and all authority in heaven and on earth being delivered to him. So Paul says, you might think when we come that because I'm talking about embracing weakness that somehow I'm going to be wishy-washy or I'm going to be a pushover or I'm not going to forcefully stand among you for truth. Just know that I embrace this weakness but I will be operating out of the power of Christ in me. Let me ask you, how have you embraced both the weakness and the power of Christ in your life. Verse 5. Put yourselves to the test to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Otherwise, you have failed the test. But I hope that you will know that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you might do no wrong not so that we may appear to have passed the test, but so that you might do what is good, even if we seem to have failed the test. 
For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And for this we pray, your perfection. This is why I write these things while absent. So that when I arrive, I may not have to act with severity, using the authority that the Lord gave to me for building up, not for tearing down. Paul encourages his readers to test themselves. Have you ever done this? Have you stopped a moment and looked at yourself and said, I wondered, am I really living in faith? Is, is, am I truly in Christ? Or am I somehow going through the motions of it? Am I somehow pretending And the New Testament is filled with this kind of warning. Make sure you're not deceiving yourself into thinking you're okay when you're not. We're so good at lying to ourselves that this is a very real danger. That we can convince ourselves that we are in Christ when we're not at all. So he says, put yourselves to the test and see whether you are in the faith. Now notice the key issue that Paul says will determine whether or not you're in the faith. Do you not recognize about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? If not, you failed the test. What does that mean? Well, it means that the faith we're talking about here is not simply a creedal faith. You don't just read a creed, I believe in God the Father, uh, Holy Spirit, Jesus the Son, that Jesus was crucified and rose on the third day. We have these creeds that go through all these statements of faith. And some people think that faith is merely intellectual assent or agreement, a, 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 a statement of belief. And if I say that I believe these things, then that's it. That's faith. Paul doesn't say anything about that. He says, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the promised figure through all Scripture who would fix what was broken in all of creation. That Jesus is in you. That is the litmus test. Which means that when we're talking about biblical faith, it's not a propositional faith. It's a relational faith. Jesus is either in you or he isn't. You can say you believe whatever you want to, but the true determinant of whether you are in the faith or not is that. Regardless of what else you say, you believe You have failed the test, he says, if you don't have Jesus Christ in you. He says, I hope you know that we have not failed that test. I think if we look at Paul's life, there's one thing that's clear about him. His life was radically turned upside down the moment he came face to face with Jesus. And his life had become an obsession with Jesus. 
It permeated everything he did. It guided everything, every decision he took. And it was in his motivation for everything he had devoted his whole life to. It's very obvious looking at Paul that Jesus was in him. His whole life was about that. Jesus was not some addition to his life, not some guru who was going to help him be the better him uh, or be all he can be to actualize his personal potential. uh, Paul had surrendered his life to Jesus. And if there was anything he was about, it was about Jesus. He was a good example of somebody living in the faith. And he says, so this is what we're after, that you have a genuine relationship with Christ. And what we're begging God about you is that you should do no wrong because the minute you turn away from Christ and and begin to believe what is wrong, then what ends up happening is that because you are in the wrong, the things you do, things that come out of you, will be wrong as well. You'll be operating out of what you have to give. We want God to so work in you that nothing that is wrong is coming out of you. And he wants them to understand, the reason I say this isn't because I'm afraid you guys are going to make me look bad. It's not so that we may appear to have passed the test. In other words, people are questioning whether I'm a legitimate apostle or not. And boy, if you guys do something wrong, then that's going to give them ammunition to say that I am not the apostle I claim to be. Paul says, no, I'm not trying to curate my own personal image, my public persona. I'm not building up my image as this great apostle and using you to benefit me. The reason I want God to help you do no wrong is that that would mean that you would be able to do what's good. I want you to know the goodness of God, not in theory, but in actualized life. I want you to experience the good. To the point he says, if that's what happens, even if we should seem to have failed the test. So as long as that's what's happening, if people think we've messed up, if people still have a mistaken bad opinion of us, I'm good with that. I don't care. You see, Paul's not operating out of ego here. He's not upset because people are attacking him and somehow tainting his public persona and his ministry. He says, as long as God is doing among you what he needs to do, I don't care what people think about me. People think I'm not in Christ. Go ahead. I don't care. All I'm really after is that God will do the right thing in your lives. He says, we know we can't do anything against the truth. And I think Paul here is reflecting uh, John's understanding as he quotes Jesus himself in his gospel who said, I am the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. Truth isn't merely a concept. Truth is a person. Everything about God is true. And as the Bible says, let God be true, though everyone else be found a liar. The truth stands firmly in who Jesus is. And Paul knows this about that truth. 
with a capital T. That that truth has already conquered sin and death and is owner of all creation. <coughs> so he has no doubt <coughs> as to the absolute victory of truth over every opposing force. <coughs> So he says, there's nothing we can do, nothing we can accomplish against the truth. I could spend my whole life fighting against the truth. <clears throat> but I know that it would be a waste. That it would end up coming to nothing at all. Because the truth is unopposable. All I can do is work for the truth. If I want my life to contribute anything that will in any way remain, that will not be erased at the day of Christ's coming, it will be the things that I have done for the truth. Paul was deeply committed to truth. I think we're good, we should remind ourselves of this, that lies and deception are never going to be the way to advance God's purposes. Only the truth will accomplish anything. And he says, we rejoice in our weakness and your strength. And if we contrast Paul's own description of his recent experiences, his multiple beatings, his going hungry and cold and uh, suffering uh, shipwrecks and all these horrible things he's been dealing with and his weakness and brokenness and lack of resources all the things he's been living through he says we rejoice in our weakness and your strength and comparatively the Corinthian believers apparently are not facing persecution they are not facing lack of material needs and they are uh, in a position that could be described as a position of strength Paul says, we're not wishing you ill. I'm happy to uh, celebrate the fact that we're going through the hardships we're going through and you right now are not. I'm happy about all of that. We rejoice in all of this. But this is what we're praying for, not that God will never let anything hard happen to you. We are praying for your perfection. That word has the idea of coming to full maturity. Um, so uh, our, what we're praying that God will do in you is not leave you where you are but that he will continue drawing you forward until you reach that fully mature state of what he wants of, your, of you and of your lives Paul says, I'm writing all of this, and I think here he's addressing basically his whole letter. All this stuff I've been writing to you even before I get there. I'm sending it ahead so that when I get there, hopefully you have heard my words and uh, opened your hearts to what I'm trying to tell you so that when I get there, I don't have to act severely among you. Paul was reluctant to be harsh. He didn't gleefully relish the fight. Some leaders thrive on conflict. It just gets their blood boiling and they like that feeling. And they like crushing their opponents and they like coming out on top and winning. Paul wasn't that kind of leader. And he tells them up front, man, I don't want a fight when I get there. I don't. 
And I don't want to have to be harsh with anyone. I don't enjoy that, Paul says. I don't want to find myself forced to use the authority the Lord gave to me with severity among you. And Paul is aware that Christ has given him authority, that his apostleship carries some weight, and that he has the authority to impact the church in significant ways. Paul is aware of that. And he doesn't, he doesn't uh, make use of that authority lightly. But he will deal severely with sin in the congregation and with false teaching in the congregation because to not do so is a complete failure as a leader. It's to fail the people he's loving and, and leading. But he, he reminds them, I understand why God gives authority. For building up, not for tearing down. Even when Paul is dealing with sin. In 1 Corinthians 5, he says something very harsh. There's a guy who's shacked up with a woman who used to be married to his father. Paul says, even pagans won't put up with that kind of thing. What are you guys doing? And he says, here's what I want you all to do. And I spiritually am with you in this. I want you guys to get together and I want you to hand this person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's pretty harsh. Turn this guy over to Satan so that Satan has free reign given by Christ to do what he wants to him. That's kind of an allusion to Job, right? When God said to Satan, do whatever you want to his body. Just don't take his life. And that's kind of the thought of what Paul's saying. But then he says that this destruction of the flesh so that he might be saved. Anytime Paul speaks of, of using authority, even in uh, correction or even in discipline, the ultimate goal is not destruction. It's not to relegate a person to utter ruin. It's always meant to build the person back up, to free that person from sin so that they can be restored to health and life and all good things. Paul made use of his authority for building people up, not for tearing them down. How often in the lives of churches have people used their authority just to tear others down? Just to dismiss or diminish others and consolidate their own power. Paul does not see authority in Christ working that way. It's always about building up. And if there is sin, it is confronted with the goal of building that person up. This is what it looks like to live the faith. To pass the test to be truly living in Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ to be very evidently living in us. Let me ask you, what is the evidence that Jesus Christ lives in you? 
maybe you claim the Christian faith. Is Jesus the Messiah in you? Verse 11, finally, siblings, rejoice. Set things right. Be encouraged. Agree with one another. Be at peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul concludes his letter, as he often does, with a short series of very quick instructions. And he prefaces it by calling them siblings, brothers. And he, Paul loves to remind fellow believers that this is what we are in Christ. We are family, dearly beloved family. <clears throat> it is from that familial love that Paul issues these instructions. Rejoice. I'll be the first to admit, we're just wrapping up this letter. And there are many passages in this letter that you might think of as being kind of a downer, right? Uh, you know, embrace weakness and suffering and hardship. And don't just think of it as an, uh, an odd blip in your life, but think of it as the very context within which Christ is going to be doing his good work in your life. So embrace it. Welcome it. That's hard to hear. We don't want to hear that. And we might be uh, led to, to think that our walk in Christ is some kind of drudgery, constant suffering and sorrow and nothing uh, to be uh, excited about. And Paul says, no, don't misunderstand my letter. Rejoice! Celebrate the fact that Jesus is so gloriously good and powerful that even the worst in your life, he converts into blessing and good. That is reason to rejoice. No matter what we're facing. And he says, set things right. Things are off kilter right now. There are people spreading lies and, and people living in sin and not repenting of it. And there's all kinds of stuff here that shouldn't be there. Make it right. Don't just ignore it. Get things in order in your church. And be encouraged. Don't be discouraged. Take, take heart that Christ is at work among you. Agree with one another. You know why that doesn't happen in churches? Because we're too enamored with our own opinion to be willing to sacrifice it to be at peace. I would rather be right than be united. I would rather you be wrong than for us to be in harmony. Paul says, learn to prize harmony and unity. It's more valuable than many of our opinions. I'm not saying we, have, we can agree on everything. Sometimes there is a moment to stand in the authority Christ gives us and be severe. 
There is a moment for that. But the general tenor of our life together has to be one of agreement in Christ. If we are all in Christ, there should be a very evident harmony and unity among us. A unity of purpose. A unity of where we're headed together. Agree with one another. Look for it. Figure out how to make it happen. Be at peace. What's the benefit to following all these instructions? He says, the God of love and peace will be with you. Isn't that what we really need, what we really want? Don't we want God to be with us? God who is love, who is peace for us. Don't, isn't that what we want? Paul says this pattern of doing things together is the way we open ourselves up to be receptive to the God of love and peace. And he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now we know from Paul's writings to the Corinthian church that sexual immorality was an issue in the, in the city. And of course, Corinth was like the Vegas of the ancient world. You went there to have a party and a good time, and you know what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It was that kind of city. In fact, in the first century, to call a woman a Corinthian girl was to say she was a temple prostitute. To be Corinthianized was to fall into immorality. So it's no surprise that the church had this in their background and it was a struggle for them. And you might say, well, the way you deal with sexual immorality is to be really severe and make sure nobody is, uh, you know, only side hugs and, uh, you know, uh, all this kind of regulation that we try to do to, uh, to uh, cover all forms of uh, shows of affection so that nothing is wrong. Paul could have said nothing, but he actually issues a command, greet one another with a holy kiss. So Paul says the way you deal with sexual immorality is not to remove all forms of affection from the congregation. What you need to do is learn a new way of being affectionate with one another that's not self selfish, that's not self-centered, that is not trying to make use of another person to satisfy some desire of your own, but that is actually a genuine, honest expression of love that has nothing but the good of the other in, in mind. Not just any kiss, a holy kiss, a sanctified kiss, a kiss that is an act of worship and obedience to God. I'm happy to say we're a congregation that practices holy kissing. We are an affectionate congregation. And that's what Paul's talking about. If we are in Christ, we had better love each other. And if we don't love each other, something is horribly wrong. Horribly. Because God is love. It has to be a part of our life that we see each other and we're not indifferent, but we run over and give hugs and kisses and say, man, how you doing? We greet one another. We don't ignore each other. We don't shy away. We are affectionate, openly, 
but in a way that honors God. All the saints greet you. So the greeting also comes from probably Paul is referring to here to the believers in Macedonia that are with him as he writes the letter. And he ends with a blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is a Trinitarian construction. The Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And from these three come grace, love, and fellowship. And Paul is describing, as we're striving to live this life together in Christ the way God wants us to, we are opening ourselves up to God giving all of himself to us. In fact, the full Godhead is involved. Not just Jesus, not just the Father, not just the Holy Spirit. All that comprises who God is, is invested in blessing us. In bringing grace and love and fellowship into our lives. Fellowship with God, fellowship with one another. Love of God, love for one another, and the grace of God that covers us in our shortcomings. That's what it looks like to live together in Christ. Let me ask you, how are you pursuing the fullness of all God is seeking to do in your life? So what should a Christian life look like? Should it include the kind of thing we see all around us, striving to get your own way, fighting tooth and nail to climb and scramble to the top of the heap? Using other people? Living for yourself? Paul says the way we live in Christ should be radically different from what we see around us. It should be a simple life lived with an open recognition of our own weakness and our utter dependence on God. It should be a life devoid of ego and self-promotion. It should be a life unflinchingly devoted to the good, firmly opposed to every form of what is wrong or untrue. It should be a life that pursues what is good in others, even if it's not going to benefit us personally in any way. It's a life that makes use of authority and power in Christ only to build up, only to strengthen, never to defend a wounded ego or vindictively destroy another person. And when we live together in Christ... God pours his grace, his love, and that sweet, sweet fellowship into us. This is what it means not just to be Christian. This is what it means to be truly human, to truly live. We're going to sing a song now, and it's our time in the service to respond to God's word. I don't know what God may have said to you this morning. If you, we've been talking about taking the test. Is Jesus Christ in you? If you have to say, no, he is not. 
I want to ask you today to have the courage to change that. To have the courage to come to Jesus and say, I don't know the first thing about it, but I want you to be in me and I want you to change everything about my life. If that's you this morning, this is your chance. Come and there are going to be people here at the front on either side. Go to either side and tell them what God is calling you to and they will help you pray and ask Jesus to take your life. Maybe you already know Jesus and you've been reminded today of something about the way you're living your life. You're, you're not obeying him the way you should. You are not being obedient to what he's calling you to do. Whatever God may be confronting you with today, I want to challenge you to come forward and say, God, I want to share with my brothers and sisters and I want to agree with you. I want you to fix what's wrong in my life. I want to be obedient. Whatever God has laid on your heart this morning, please come while we sing. Let's all stand.